Actually, if you would, can you stand real quick? We're going to hear from God's Word. I just want us to stand as we hear. As we hear the Word of the Lord read. I'm going to read from two places. Uh, We're going to cover today the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read a little bit at the end. I just want you to hear, hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against it that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Lord, your teaching that we're going to study today, Lord, it just 
as I've studied it, it's like there's a beckoning cry for all to hear and behold what you are like. To come and to worship. To come and to adore. So may we come this morning worshiping you because you, Lord Jesus, are worthy. Thank you, we pray. We ask now that we would be attentive to your word. Change us, shape us, we ask, more and more into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Today we're going to pick up uh, in our series through the book of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be returning back to see who, Ma- who Matthew declares Jesus is, what Jesus is like. And thus far we've seen in Matthew, I'm not going to cover it, we covered all of chapters 1 through 4, and we saw that Jesus was the true king in the line of David. We saw that he was the seed of Abraham to inherit the promises of God. And finally we saw that he was coming to establish God's kingdom. Now today's section, on te- the teaching, we're going to actually cover chapters 5 through 7. And I hope you're probably, my brother, I told him what I was preaching on yesterday. And he's like, you're going to cover two chapters in one day? It's like, okay, calm, calm down. We're not going to cover all two chapters today. Uh, but this is one of the biggest sections of teaching in the book of Matthew. And actually, I would argue that if you know anybody who claims to be a Christian or knows anything about Jesus, I guarantee you it's from this section of scripture they know it. Things like the golden rule. Whatever you do to others, do also to... Or, so whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. Or judge not, lest you be judged. That sound familiar? We hear these things. But if we treat the teachings of Jesus in this hodgepodge, soundbite sense, I would argue we miss, we miss Jesus entirely. The question is, is there more than these simple sound bites that are put together that people end up taking? And I would argue there is. And here's what I want us to see. So we're going to cover the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount today. uh, Because I think it's just really important we understand how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. To understand it. Here's what I want us to see. If you're taking notes, see this at the top of your page. True happiness belongs to the reordered, redeemed, and righteous followers of Jesus who radiate the character of Christ. Say that one more time. True happiness belongs to the reordered, redeemed, and righteous followers of Jesus who radiate the character of Christ. And I want us to see, first off, that Jesus' sermon, we're going to cover some, I would argue, some major themes throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the first theme I think we need to notice, we need to reckon with. Jesus' sermon is about a happy kingdom. The happy kingdom. I use that word happy, and I realize fully how that word comes across. Happy, slappy, just, I I don't know. I picture when I hear the word happy, just like kids eating a happy meal, okay? That's what I picture. And when we think about the kingdom of God, that's not what we think about, is it? I'll say for me at least, that's not what I thought about. When I thought about Christianity and about following Christ, I remember when I first really came to faith, I thought it was about judgment, doom, and gloom. And, but Jesus, what's he start off the, the Beatitudes with? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy. A better way to even render that is actually happy. Happy is the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. We're going to cover these in the next couple of weeks. But I want you to notice that Jesus' sermon is primarily about the happy kingdom. You know, how me and you define happiness, I would argue, governs our whole life. I, 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 I can, I'm going to make a statement. I think this is true. You and I are most governed in any moment by what we are most happy in. We actually cannot not pursue our greatest happiness. That's how Christianity, that's how people are fundamentally wired. You and I are always pursuing our greatest happiness. The question is, what makes you most happy? And what do you believe will make you most happy? And every sin, I said this the other week, but I want to say it again. Every sin, the first sin behind every sin is this thing over here will make me more happy than God. It's, it's the lie of sex. It's the lie of money. It's the lie of power. This thing over here will start making me more happy than Christ will. And all of these realities lie to us. It's the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan came to her. It wasn't about the apple. It had nothing to do with the apple. It could have been a pear. It could have been a fruit. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is, Satan offered something to Eve that would, would basically be, here's what will give you true happiness. Here's your true happiness. The fundamental truth of Scripture is that God is happy in and of Himself. Let me say that one more time. God is happy without me and you. Okay, let me say that one more time. For all the people in the back, for all the room, for us to know, God doesn't need us to be happy. He doesn't need you and I to be happy. But in the abundance of who he is, he overflows and shares his happiness with us. We sing what we just sang about. Man, the songs this morning, in the words of the college students, they would say the song slapped. That's good. I hope you see how much those we sing praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit who has given himself into us. The happy God has made himself known. Fundamentally, go, go ask somebody this week. If you, you're wondering if, what they think, ask them what's God like. And I guarantee you an adjective they won't describe God is happy. And that fundamentally is, what keeping, is what's keeping them from the kingdom. They don't believe they'll find happiness in Christ. And Jesus says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, people in the South, they love to say things like, oh, bless your heart. Bless you. Oh, bless your heart. And that's the polite way of saying sometimes, how stupid are you? But we like you. That's not the kind of blessed Jesus is talking about here. He's, or we even say, we're blessed. And that's true. But the term happy gets a bad rap. And I would argue, though, that's a really good rap. We should, we should start seeing that it's actually a really good thing to describe happiness. I'm happy in Christ. So statements like, Christians aren't meant to be happy. They're meant to be holy. Have you heard statements like that? I want to respond to it and say, those two two things aren't opposed to each other. Actually, our greatest happiness is found in our holiness. It's impossible to split apart the transient feelings of happiness from the reality that Jesus brought. Christians are holy, and this makes them happy. Let me say that one more time. When we are holy, that's where our most happiness comes from.
We are ultimately happy in Christ. Don Carson, I think, helpfully says, blessed describes a state not of inner feelings on the part of those whom it is applied, but of blessedness from an ideal point of view in the judgment of others. Our greatest happiness will be tied to what Jesus has to tell us. So for for us Americans who love the pursuit of happiness, let's pursue happiness. But let's make sure we're very clear where that happiness resides, and it's in Christ. And I want us to see two things of this. The happiness that Jesus has come to bring us is meant for all of us. You know, this is one of the biggest I would argue it's like stumbling blocks you need to see of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, what, which is what he goes and says. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. And he's saying when he says that, hey, everyone who thinks they're rich, that's not for you. The happiness isn't for you. The poor, the lame, the crippled, the downtrodden, the Pharisees would have heard this and thought, what is this? This is a really weird kingdom. What kind of kingdom are you bringing? All Christians are meant to show the characteristics of the blessed one. And we'll look at this more next week. It's not for extra special men and women. It's for me and for you. The Beatitudes, as one guy says, Jim Boyce helpfully says, the Beatitudes of Jesus describe the character of the men who live, living under God's fatherly rule made manifest in Jesus, enjoy happiness, even here and now, though its perfection belongs to the consummated kingdom. So Christian, I have just a very simple question to ask you. What makes you most happy? That sounds like a really weird, probably even like therapeutic question, but genuinely, we need to ask it. What makes you most happy? And what you believe makes you most happy, I would argue, is what you're pursuing, whether you admit it or not. So brothers and sisters, what I hope we can start seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at more particular, that what Jesus is saying is the good life, the happy life, that we would just pursue. We would pursue with abandon. And I just always want to mention, if you're an unbeliever sitting here, and you're thinking, Pastor, you have no idea what you're talking about. Have you ever tried heroin? Pastor, have you you ever tried alcohol? Pastor, have you ever tried sex? And what I want to say to you all, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is get out of the slew of pretending that you're happy. Because it really doesn't make you happy. It really doesn't satisfy you. The thing you're pursuing will not make you happy. It won't make you. It can't make you happy. You know, the same thing's true of our society. That's true of unbelievers, but it's also true of society at large. Every kingdom tries to convince its people it's bringing happiness. Well, not every kingdom, but a lot of kingdoms that care about their people want to tell them they're going to bring happiness, particularly the kingdom we live in, the United States. Every, the, the kingdom we currently reside in keeps talking about happiness, and yet they don't define it. So friends, we can't expect to find happiness in getting the right political party. I want to say this to both sides, every side of the fence. You will not find happiness there. It's not found in policy. It's not found in society. Here's the other thing I want us to see. The happiness, it's, it's, it's meant for everybody. 
the happiness is not naturally oriented to us. It's not naturally oriented to any of us. You know, me and you, none of us, have any natural leanings toward the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that one more time. There's no one here, nor has there ever been anyone, who has natural leanings to the kingdom of heaven. And you may often hear, I remember hearing growing up, oh, little Jimmy, he's always been a good little boy. He's really prone to the kingdom in some way. But believers and unbelievers are starkly different. Believers and unbelievers are starkly different because even in the midst of trial, a Christian that is radiating the characteristics of Christ is truly happy. The unbeliever tries to find every other thing to to make them happy. Even amid persecution and suffering, the Christian can ultimately say, I am and will one day be happy. Jesus, uh, uh, Jim Boyce again, helpfully. He says, Jesus spoke these words. He was telling his listeners how they could be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy and how they could maintain this happiness even in the midst of life's disappointments and hard times. I want to be very fair here. I'm not saying we pursue happiness. I'm saying we need to redefine that in Jesus Christ is our greatest happiness. So I'm not saying try extra hard to be happy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying go pursue your happiness. I'm saying pursue Christ and believe that in him is your greatest happiness. The person who has poverty of spirit will have their head lifted by the Son of God. The person who mourns their sin will be happy in the forgiveness that's granted to them in Christ. And we could go on and on and on, but I'm going to save that for another week. True happiness belongs to the reordered, redeemed, and righteous followers of Jesus who radiate the character of Christ. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Second thing I want us to see is that Jesus' sermon displays his ultimate authority. I think one of the most frustrating comments I hear from people, maybe, maybe one of the most frustrating, is when they say, you know, Jesus, he was just like all the other rabbis. He was just, say that out loud. He was just like all the other rabbis. Has anyone ever, like, thought through that, that statement before they say it? I don't think so. Has any rabbi ever said this? Just hear this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Hey, that whole Old Testament, you know that thing? I've come to fulfill it. Yeah, he sounds just like all the other rabbis. All the other rabbis are going around saying, I've come to fulfill the thing you come and find life in. That's, Jesus places himself at the center of the Old Testament. All the law, all the prophets, Jesus has come to fulfill. Listen to another statement. Everyone then who hears these words of mine Who's that? Wait, say that one more time, Jesus, for the people in the back, for all the people who say Jesus is just like all the other people. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus' words are the great separator of history. The way a person responds to Jesus' words will determine whether he's wise or foolish. Or even take the passage everyone knows, the golden rule, so, do, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
They're like, oh, the golden rule. Yes, Confucius said that many years earlier. Oh, yeah, did Confucius say this? Enter by the narrow gate, which is himself. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Does that sound Confucius-like? Jesus is saying he is the ultimate authority that he's bringing. And the narrow gate is Jesus himself. And take it, if you don't hear it from them, then I can hear the same people who say that Jesus was just like all the other rabbis. They will then say, well, you know, people in Jesus' day, they didn't really think that of Jesus. They just saw him as another rabbi. Listen to what it says in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus is just like all the other rabbis, huh? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount, friend? So how do we understand this sermon today? This is a very important question and really why I wanted to spend this week talking about it. Because church history, they're, they're really split on how they understand the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you two broad ways they've understood it and I think the way that we need to understand it. The first way, and I would argue you see this in things like the Amish, uh, Mennonites oftentimes are geared in this direction. Uh, it's law-oriented or command-focused. Now, Jesus says some commands in here that we're going to have to look at and we're going to see that should make you want to be like, oh my, oh goodness, oh goodness. But law-oriented folks, here's what they end up trying to do. They end up hearing, they end up hearing things that they need to do to obey. Like that Jesus came to fulfill the old law, but he gave us this new law. Here was, he get rid of this old law, we don't need that, but let me give you a new law. That's what the natural human heart wants to do. This view tends toward legalism. It tends toward hyperly focusing on rules. Now, I'm not saying Mennonites and all Amish are in this place. Hear me correctly. But it's it's the vein that they grew up in. And and it goes something like this. If we obey, then we'll be made right with God. And the problem is that the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in was distinct from the kingdom they had experienced. This view neglects the good news aspect of the gospel, which they read the Sermon on on the Mount, divorced from the cross. That's what I would argue happens in both views. Here's the second view. It's gospel-oriented, meaning it's declaration-focused. So this would be people like Lutherans. Um, some Reformed folks go this direction. They basically say, Jesus says some really hard things in here, so what he's doing is he's showing us how much of, lo- how much of failures we are so that we'll see he fulfilled these things, and we don't have to do anything. That's how it goes. That's how the line of reasoning goes. Actually, listen, this is actually a good example. Even in the Schofield Reference Bible, this is what Schofield said. He said, the Sermon on the Mount in its primary application, gives neither privilege nor duty to the church. Can you hear what he just said right there? It doesn't give privilege nor duty to me and you. This is what Schofield was saying. So again, they see it and they say, well, this is too much. This is too heavy for us. We're saved by grace. Therefore, it doesn't matter to us. Okay, we can't take that view either. I want us to take a view that's like this. Here's the third way. I don't even know what to call it, but this is actually grace. I think these two views end up doing what I think 
the pitfall is of people's understanding of grace. Some people think grace means you just have to obey. Try really hard, and then I'll make it. And then some people think, well, grace, I can't do it anyways, but Jesus did it all for me, so therefore, I don't have to live any of this out. Here's the nature of the kingdom. This is how I would describe it. The nature of the kingdom first drives us to despair of ourselves and our morality in order that we might turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And that, as a result of finding new life in him, we might live as Jesus himself lived in this world. So it's both. I would argue, I want us to take a view that's very similar to both of them. Jesus has truly fulfilled the law. He is our righteousness. But when that righteousness changes our hearts, we live righteously. That's how, that's how I'd want to put it. Christ's authority, though, is so great that he calls you to follow after him, and your response determines your destiny. Now, I'm gonna, I want us to look at another passage just real quick, and then we'll keep moving. But Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that's how a person is saved. We never want to come to the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, if we don't obey this, we're not going to make it. But a person who's truly saved will obey Christ. They will walk in obedience. The fruit of the life of the Christian is the life conformed to Jesus Christ. This means that Jesus' lordship, for me and you, is over every area of life. Jesus is lord over your workplace. Jesus is lord over your home. For the Christian, Jesus is lord over your sexual life. Jesus is lord over the political realm. Now, people don't live in step with it. People live in rebellion to it every day, all around us. But the Christian confidently, unashamedly proclaims Jesus' lordship over every area of life. True happiness belongs to the reordered, redeemed, and righteous follower of Jesus who radiate the character of Christ. All right, that's the second thing. Let me give you the third thing. Jesus' sermon reorients normal life. Jesus' sermon reorients normal life. Since the fall of man, what me and you understand as normal is jacked up. Let me say it one more time. What me and you understand as normal is screwed up. What's normal in your workplace for morality is screwed up. What's normal in your school is screwed up. Morality at its core is screwed up. Our understanding of normal is based upon a broken pattern of normal. Okay? If we measure normal on others, by others, fallen standard of normal, we get screwed up. But what Jesus does in this sermon is he actually takes the normal life, if you think about it like this, and he flips it upside down. And he says, so think about things even like, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit aren't blessed? What are you talking about? How are the poor in spirit happy? It's paradoxical. But he does more than that. Jesus actually reorients, even if you jump just a little further, actually in in chapter 5, 
he's going to start saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Remember that? I think he says that phrase about eight or nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, it's this way, but I'm redefining it this way for you. So he corrects our misconceptions. He corrects our misconceptions. A misconception is a belief that a person holds about the world or about themselves or about God that's wrong, fundamentally is wrong. So, so just take an example from verse 21. Jump to verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So notice what he's saying there. He's saying, you've heard it said by all the rabbis and by everybody else that if you murder somebody, then you're liable to judgment. And notice what Jesus does. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother. Now just pause. Just don't miss the radical nature of what he's saying. This has become so normal. Even This is actually why we live in such a Christian, Christianized society. Because if you said to somebody, you shouldn't be angry at your brother, he'd be like, yeah, I know that. I shouldn't do that. Before this, though, they would have said, it's fine to be angry. It's fine, as long as you don't murder them. That's what really matters. But Jesus goes, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see why people have taken these things as in the two radically different directions? Some people say, oh no, I was angry. I murdered them. Oh my. Then other people say, I can't follow this, so therefore it doesn't matter. But we do need to see Jesus is making the matter actually further. He's taking it to the heart of the matter. I want to make an observation before we move on from this. Christian, what this means for me and you is simply that if you're staring at the Word of God from week to week, and you're never corrected by the Word of God, if the Word of God never confronts you, I'm going to challenge you to say, I don't think you're listening to the Word of God. I don't think you're reading it rightly. If you're never corrected from Scripture, you're worshiping, unfortunately, a God that's made more in your own image than, than what the God of the Bible is. When we hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to expect to be corrected over and over and over and over again. Actually, I would say that's the right way to understand the Sermon on the Mount. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we need to hear. I just want you to think how many times this week you were angry with somebody. Just take a minute. Or we can go further and even talk about lust or divorce or oaths or love. And he, think about how many times we failed at this over and over and over. And it shows just how jacked up our own lives are, just how screwed up normal is for us. You should be concerned when you start to hear Jesus' words and think, I don't want to hear this anymore. That's when you need to be concerned. But the Christian, when he hears these words, he knows quickly, yeah, I failed umpteen times this week, but Lord, help me walk in obedience. We need to be concerned when we think, I don't want to listen to what he's saying anymore. This makes me angry. But if you're being corrected from the Sermon on the Mount, that means you're hearing it correctly. And that's a good thing. 
If you find at times, the next several months, as if you find at times you're just drawn to your knees, praise God. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So not only he corrects us, or he, he, he corrects our misconception, he orients us toward righteousness. Let me give you another one that we, that we, that we hear Jesus say. It's in, it's in 543, if you jump just a page over. He says this, he says, you have heard that it was said, so there it is again, he's correcting their misconception, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, okay? Very reasonable. He's saying, this is what you've heard, love your neighbor, love the people closest to you, but those enemies, just hate them, that's okay. But this is what Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure how much you've prayed for your enemies this week. And Jesus is correcting and raising the bar of righteousness. It's no longer simply wrong to outwardly commit adultery. It's wrong to lust in our heart. It's no longer wrong that we just not murder somebody. It's wrong that we hate them. It's no longer wrong that we just love people who like us. We have to love those who hate us. Actually, Jesus goes further in verse 48, and he says things like this. You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. First question to come to your mind, how can we be perfect? Is this just hyperbole? Oh, he's just driving us to our knees so that we come back to him. No, no, no. Is he serious? You must be perfect. And I can adamantly say, actually, based on verse 48, unless you and I are perfect, we will not stand before God. Let me say that one more time. Unless you and I are perfect, we will not stand before God. But I want you to notice the last piece, and this will move us into our last piece, that Jesus' sermon declares the ethics of his followers. So I want, I'll, we'll conclude that piece in just a second. Ethics simply is the principle that, dire- that directs a person's behavior. Some people have actually called the Sermon on the Mount the manifesto of the Christian faith. It's the teaching of the Christian faith. And here's what he requires. Jesus requires a greater righteousness. Not only does he call us to be perfect, he calls us in verse 20 through 18 of chapter 5. Jump there real quick. He says, for, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here are these, just these two commands alone. We, we, could have, we could look at more. But these two commands alone. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. And, coupled with that, you must be perfect. And if you're not perfect, you will not stand before God. So what's Jesus driving at here? I would argue he's arguing for one main thing, even in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this. Well, it's two things, but it's this one thing at the same time. It's not of human merit. 
It's not of human merit. It's not a human-earned righteousness. I can confidently look at you and say, you must be more righteous than the Pharisees. And if you're not, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And you must be perfect one day in order to stand before the Father. But it's not of human merit. It's not anything you in yourself do. Listen to what Jesus says later in Matthew 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, people who put on masks, for you clean the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So notice what he's saying there. You clean the outside of the cup, and yet the inside that you drink from, it's disgusting. That's the problem. That's what he's, he's, he's poking at. He goes on. He says, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup, the plate, and the plate that the outside may be also clean, also may be clean. He goes again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, cleanliness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's how we should hear what Jesus is saying here. It's not that the Pharisees have scored like a 90 or like an 85% on their test. And what Jesus is saying to me and you is, well, you, you need to get a 98. If you don't have a 98% on your test, you're out. That's actually not what he's saying here. He's saying you qualitatively need a different righteousness. You need a righteousness that's not yours in order to walk in righteous deeds. Here's, I'm, a, I'm a chart thinker. This is how I think about everything is in charts. Let me give you this chart. I think it's really helpful. Two people, okay, talking to one another. You know, there's three levels I want us to think about this at. The most basic level that we see all the time are people's choices, what they do. And then we see kind of their desires. But then there's this piece, and now the Pharisees, they were really good at keeping their choices and appearances. They had their appearances all right. But he says to them, your heart is wicked. And what he's telling us is that me and you primarily need something to occur in us that begins inwardly, not outwardly. It begins inwardly, not outwardly. It's a different kind of righteousness is what they needed. They needed the righteousness of God in faith in order to produce righteousness in their lives. And the ethics of the kingdom, this is why liberalism is so devoid of Christianity. Because what they do is they say, just look outwardly good. Everyone look outwardly good. If we're all outwardly good, then everything will be okay. If we just outwardly follow the commands of Jesus, then everything will work. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying unless we have a change of heart, we will not actually have the kind of righteousness, righteous deeds that we need. So it's not of human merit, but I want you to see, but it's of divine grace. It's of divine grace. And this is why I say that people have misinterpreted the Sermon on the Mount for so long, because I think they misinterpret grace. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the power of God to break off sin in our lives in order to walk in obedience. Grace is both forgiving and empowering. 
And if we don't have both, we miss it. We get a warped view of Jesus. It's freedom to live how Jesus freed us to. Listen to what Romans 10 says, again, in another place. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the good news of even the Sermon on the Mount. We will one day, this is the confidence of the Christian even, we will one day stand before God perfect. Not because of what we did, but because of what Christ has done. And that credited to us, yet working out righteous deeds all over the place. Christ is the end of the law because he's brought the righteousness that we inherit by faith. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So from old to young, from rich to poor, from lame to crippled to healthy to not healthy, Christ is the end of the law because we get a greater righteousness from him that allows us to walk in obedience. It's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for for faith. For it is written as the righteous, or the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, true happiness belongs to the reordered, the redeemed, and righteous followers of Jesus who radiate the character of Christ. Now, we're going to take communion. Um, and I think communion is such, a, it is such a special time because Christ, we see in communion how we're able to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood poured out for us so that we may walk in obedience, so that we may be lights shining in a dark world. I want you to hear from a different place this morning. We need to hear Jesus saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we shouldn't hear, oh man, there's just more burden, there's more burden, he's just laying more things on us to do. No, 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 no. This is freedom, brothers and sisters. True freedom. True freedom is what it is to walk, walk in. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when we come up to take communion, we should be, you, you should be one who is heavy laden, who is needing rest. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So I want us to t- turn now, and I want us to take communion together. So if the deacons can come forward, if Jared, Tony, or however you guys want to do it, if you guys want to come forward. I want you to hear the same, we read this often, 
But I want you to hear even what Jesus says coupled with that. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Jesus says, come to me all who labor, all who are heavy laden. And so if you this morning are heavy laden with sin, If you this morning are heavy laden and burdened, take and eat. Take and eat and know that it's the person who is heavy laden with sin, who mourns and weeps over their sin that's invited to take. So take. Now, to eat this bread and drink this cup in an unworthy manner is to be sitting there and thinking, I don't need this. I've got it covered. If that's you, this isn't for you. Just let it pass. It's okay. So if the guys can pass it out, that'd be great. You know, the imagery Jesus uses there in Matthew 11, it's really interesting. He says, um, I want to read it again. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the yoke, if you picture, if you remember how they used to farm a long time ago, they used to have a yoke that would actually be on like the back of an oxen or, a, or cows. And it would actually bind them together. And you know, what we're doing here this morning is we're, it's a symbol, but it's a symbol of what the reality is. Is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place and so yoked himself with me and you that he so said, you, a sinner... I'm bringing, I'm yoking under with you that you may walk underneath my burden, which is light and which is easy. He's going to take on our sin and give us his righteousness. This is what Paul then goes on to say, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. When you hear him saying that, hear him saying He's breaking the bread for you, for me. This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord's death together. You know, one of the things they used to do with oxen when they would put them together, and then we were in, whatever, I won't tell you who I learned this from, but I thought it was funny how, who I learned this from. Uh, they used to put inexperienced oxen with the more experienced ones. You know, they, they would put the weaker one with the one who was stronger and who would bear the most weight. They would put the one who would wander a lot with the one who knew the way. And the same is true of Jesus, what he calls us to. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life, or is, is light. And the burden he's asking us to do is to actually lay our sin upon his back and to walk with him. He, bear, he bears the weight and yet simultaneously calls us to follow him. And he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant or the new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You know what we're doing? What we're doing here is we're remembering Christ's body and his blood shed for us. And by faith, we're trusting. I'm made righteous, not by even taking this, but because of Christ's blood for me. Amen. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death together. I want to say a note uh, as we're closing up here. I'll speak directly to the children. Uh, children, I know we invite you to be in service with us. And often it's probably confusing. I mean, I remember taking communion when I was itty-bitty, long before I was baptized. And I think that was really wrong. I want to, I want to just tell you as children, <laughs> communion is meant to represent our abiding relationship with Christ. And baptism is actually the sign that shows that we are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And communion is the symbol that continues to show we're abiding with him. And baptism apart from, or communion apart from baptism is, is folly. It, there's no point in it. So let me encourage you, uh, if you have questions about that, talk to your parents. 
Talk to your parents. See what they see. What talk to them. Uh, we can we can work out. See where you're at with your walk with the Lord. Um, but just know that's part of the reason why we don't have children take take communion, is because they're not united to Christ yet. That's what we're saying, um, and we're saying that after a person has been united to Christ in baptism, they can take communion. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you're a little kid. If you're a kid sitting here and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. Baptism nor communion save you. Christ saves you. So come to Christ. Come to Christ today even. So if you have questions about that, you can talk to me. You can talk to your parents. Um, but I want to pray for us just as we close out. And I want you just to hear the words of Jesus again. Because this is what we're going to hear in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend the next several months in the Sermon on the Mount. And, but the thing we'll continually come back and hear is Jesus' admonition to all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have accomplished our salvation, that in your Son you have given over to death for our sake, that we may live. May we live in the fullness and the abundance of life that Christ has offered, today even. Lord, give us the grace to walk in obedience to you even as we leave here. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of announcements for us, and then we will close out. Uh, the first is for members, just real quick. Um, but